Hello, team, and welcome to Bureaucracy. I am your host, Emily Gross, and I am so excited today because of a very special guest talking about a very special, very important topic. And so I have Ben, ben Teleblue with me. He's a senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, and we're going to be talking all about what's going on in Iran today, um, which is really important, has been taking over the news cycle for two and a half months, and I think really mind-blowing to a lot of people. So Hi, welcome. Thanks, Emily. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. And uh, I'm, I'm glad you're shedding light on a pretty important issue because uh, two and a half months and just from a distance, all we can really do is, you know, take our hats off for the bravery of the Iranian protesters who they know they're risking life and limb, but they're still going. So, yeah, I'm, I'm glad Absolutely. you're shedding light on it. Thank you. And why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do? Sure. So I'm a senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. It's a nonprofit, nonpartisan think tank in Washington, D.C., Relative to some of the other think tanks that have been around for a century, it's a little bit younger. We've been around for about two decades, give or take a year. Uh, and I've been here for basically a decade now covering the breadth and the depth of the Iran portfolio, uh, particularly the Iran threat network, domestic, foreign. So, uh, you know, I don't like the word expert, but sometimes people introduce me as an Iran subject matter expert. But I cover basically, you know, missile, military, nuclear, domestic, political, economic, uh, so functionally covering everything that touches Iran and then how Iran interacts in the region and the U.S.-Iran drama. So uh, that's intersected a lot with like the nuclear portfolio, the sanctions portfolio, the different iterations of Iranian street protests, where uh, the U.S. and the West have fallen behind on that, what they could do. Uh, so I think now is a perfect opportunity because unfortunately all of these things are kind of convening at an inflection Absolutely. point. Absolutely. Well, very lucky to have you. So thank you. And now, before we get into the important stuff, we have to talk about the most important part, which is what are you doing? Yes, <laughs> yeah, we've come to the most important stuff. This is actually something yeah, yeah. I've brought back from a from a trip. Uh, I was just actually uh, in Europe before I was in the Middle East. This is just a left. It's a winter beer. Uh, I'm actually not the biggest cool. fan of, of winter beers, but it was what was on hand. <laughs> and just ironically, yep. you know, when in Belgium, you're drinking things that are seasonal. Uh, so this is yeah. what I brought back. I don't know why I was doing this. It's not a twist off. I have a, I have one of these. It's like World Cup <laughs> themed. Over. It's for Brazil, actually, but from an older World Cup. Okay. Uh, I'm not even yeah. rooting for Brazil. Shed a tear for the U.S. Yeah, the U.S. is out. Team, by the, way. the U.S. is out. The Iranians are out. The Germans are out. These are yeah. three teams I would tend to follow closely in the World Cup. <laughs> but yeah. So now you're just here to now you're just here to drink beer and party for exactly. it, right? <laughs> the Brazilian way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so I'm drinking. It's called Daisy Cutter Pale Ale. I liked it because women are leading the revolution, and this is what I thought kind of gave me an homage to like women power. Is that um, a woman-owned uh, brewery? Where is that? No, unfortunately not. I think it's it's a sh half acre beer, Chicago. But I do want to give a shout out to there is an Iranian woman-owned beer that's brewed in Brooklyn. Oh, what's it called? And unfortunately, I'm recording. Yeah, it's called Back Home Brewing. Oh, we should redo this with and, that uh, beer. Like, I know. I tried to. If I was in New York right now, unfortunately, I'm in Chicago visiting family. Unfortunately, because I wasn't getting beer, not because I'm visiting family um, for my parents who are listening. Family first. I'm a big family fan. That's <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Um, I wasn't able to get my hands in it. But encourage people to check it out because it seems super, super cool. Oh, well, yeah, you should do like a banner advertisement or something. Oh, <laughs> Scrolling absolutely. under while we talk about this. You'd be like, buy this yeah. now. Um, and their beers look beautiful. So, okay, cheers. Cheers, yes. Okay, hold on a second. All right. There you go. Mm. Cheers. Delicious. Oh, and, and now we're in business. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> now we're in business. Now we're doing it. So, why don't you give us a debrief of what happened? 
and what started all yeah, this? Yeah, so it, it, it's kind of what happened and what has been happening and uh, some mm-hmm. of the flaws in the coverage and some of the strengths in the coverage. But basically, in, in mid-September 2022, mid-September this year, a 22-year-old Iranian Kurdish woman uh, was visiting Iran's capital, Tehran, uh, and she was detained by the country's morality police, which is an element of the country's national police. This quote-unquote morality police enforces the discriminatory, uh, you know, uh, gender-based dress norms that are, you know, kind of like a hyper-Islamist uh, interpretation of that, uh, where you, it's a mandatory headscarf uh, and they have all these other quote-unquote modesty laws for women's dress in the country. Um, right. And she was brutally beaten, so badly beaten that she was hospitalized for three days and basically was, I would use the word murdered, um, because she passed Mm -hmm. away due to those injuries. The regime uh, tried to say that, you know, she had some pre-existing health conditions, and they obviously, as as they do, um, they try to basically pin this on the victim. And uh, long story short, hours after her death was announced, hours after this, the death of this 22-year-old woman was announced, outside the hospital, which was Kasra Hospital in Tehran, and then in her hometown of Iranian Kurdistan, which is basically in the west, northwest of the country, the small town of Sakhiz, uh, you know, there were protests. And this basically touches this capital Tehran and this small kind of rural town in, in the west, northwest, basically touches on the long-standing theme of center-periphery relations inside not just the Islamic Republic, but inside contemporary Iranian history. Uh, you know, the current mm-hmm. government was brought to power by street protests. Street protests have been instrumental in a lot of Iranian political change, some for the good, a lot uh, not for the good. You know, in the you know, not, in my view, the 1979 revolution was not for the good. Um, so that's why I would yeah. say street power in that sense was not good. Um, but uh, now the Iranians have basically taken uh, to using the street to contest the state. Uh, and you've seen different iterations of protests before in Iran, obviously. In 1999, for instance, there were protests uh, that were triggered by the closure of a reformist newspaper. In 2009, there were protests that uh, you know were triggered by the stealing of a presidential election away from a reformist candidate. But in this decade between, almost decade between 2009 to 2017, You've had a lot of, not necessarily protests, but a lot of labor strikes, a lot of failed political promises, uh, and ultimately that laid the predicate for protests that began in 2017 to present. And every protest Mm -hmm. that we've seen from 2017 to present, because I know a lot of people are saying that these kind of protests are new, they're somewhat new. They build on the legacy of 2017 to present protests because those begin on the outside in. They're demographically and geographically much more diverse than the older trend of protests that only began in Tehran. Um, and there is a lot more anti-regime slogans. So it's not about reform. It's a wholehearted seek for quest for political change. And all the triggers for these protests are different. They're economic, they're social, uh, they're security policy based. Right. There's even environmental ones. But what they're doing is basically using any exogenous issue possible. The society is using any exogenous issue to demonstrate to the world their dissatisfaction with the regime. And at a time when, you know, it's very vogue here in Washington to talk about Russia and China and great power competition and leaving the Middle East and, you know, Washington is no longer interested in the regime change business or only defines regime change in the botched way that Washington did Iraq in 2003, um, the Iranian people actually do want and they are seeking regime change. And again, like we mentioned, they're bravely protesting now, two and a half months of protests. It's hit all of Iran's 31 provinces, over 140 Mm -hmm. different cities, towns, and villages, over 150 different educational institutions to include not just 
universities and colleges, but even high schools. There's high school students being pro- being killed well, in these protests. You know, people not just under the age of yeah. 18, but under the age of 16 too. Um, and over 400, 420, 440 killed. That's a price. That's a minimum estimate uh, right now that some human rights organizations have identified. And, uh, you know, this is street power. And if it's amplified with strike power, meaning that there's an economic weapon that the protesters could use, and I'm mentioning that now because there's a call for three-day nationwide strikes inside Iran, if these two things are married together, you could get the two same critical ingredient, street power and strike power, that brought about the 1979 revolution. So again, an homage to, uh, you know, people power. Interesting. I know that right. went long, uh, in for a long haul with no, my long no, no. answers. I think the another. history of this is so important. <laughs> the history of this is so important. Um, one, the 1979 revolution, revolution, fascinating revolution that was kind of a revolt against the United States uh, inf- influence of the Iranian regime. And people thought they were kicking the U.S. out, but they ended up accidentally inputting a very strict Islamic regime, right? That they've kind of, I feel like a lot of Iranian people have just been like, well, shit, that was not what we wanted. And that's what happened. And I don't know about you, but from, obviously you're the expert, but from looking at what happened then and then what happened now, it feels like this is almost a turning point of trying to officially regain back to what before 1979 was like. Oh, for sure. I think this is a critical juncture in not just the history of street and state relations inside Iran, but the quest for the Mm -hmm. Iranian people really in the past century uh, to be authors of their own destiny, to take responsibility for political and yeah. social developments in their own country. And in many ways, Iran has been the litmus test for a lot of political developments in the Middle East. Uh, you know, now people mm. talk about if some of the authoritarian regimes in the, in the region go, you might have a Muslim Brotherhood or like a proto-populist Islamist kind of uh, takeover. Right. That is the polar opposite of what would happen in Iran. In Iran, you have an Islamist authoritarian government and you have a secular nationalist population. And it's ironic because you have one of the most, if not the most, vitriolic anti-American governments, but one of the most pro-American populations. And this this right. odd relationship is one that has befuddled a lot of Western policymakers. And uh, just an homage to what you said about the real setback of the 1979 revolution. You know, we can talk about where Turkey was then, where South Korea was then, and how economically and socially they've changed so much. And uh, the Iranian population has experienced massive brain drain and countless crises since the 1979 revolution. But there's a quote by one of the authors back here. I don't even know. There's so many books, you can't even see it. But uh, there's a good book just on Iran in the 20th century. It's a very surface-level book, but it's an easy read. I would mm-hmm. recommend it to all of uh, the viewers. It's called Days of God by James Buchan. I think he used to write for The Guardian before, or he, may, he used to be a novelist, but he speaks Persian, and there's a lot of Persian language uh, primary source material in that. And he has, I think, the best one-liner ever, which is impossible to do because you know how much I'm talking already. But like, <laughs> he, has, he has the best one-liner ever on the 1979 revolution, and I'm going to butcher it, but I think it is what the Iranians most sought to preserve, they lost, and what they most sought to attain, they never achieved. Uh, so they had social and economic uh, wealth and access, and they wanted to preserve that and add you know, political. And then not only did they not get political, but they lost the social and the economic. And that is really the tragedy of right. modern Iran today. Right. 
And I just want to focus a little bit more. This history is fascinating, and I think really important for putting into context the protests that we're seeing now. Um, and I think what's also really important to focus on is the fact that Masa Gina Amini, who, and Gina was her Kurdish name, but because of so much prejudice against Kurdish people in Iran, she couldn't really go by that name. It's, it's from what I've understood. I think there's a lot of play, the fact that she is an Iranian Kurdish woman, you know, like that's who she was. And the fact that she was from a small town in Kurdistan and the like tension between Iran, like main Iran and then the Kurdish provinces, I think is a really important aspect at play. And I would love for you to touch on that. Sure. Uh, there's, there's ways to talk about it and there's ways to talk about it that don't give the regime the ammunition that they're trying to use right now, because uh, you know, for instance, Iran is actually a very diverse country. Persian is kind of the lingua franca. Anywhere from 51 to 65 percent of the population is ethnic Persian, quote unquote. Um, but if you look at a lot of these demographic and geographic maps, you know, people's racial identity and ethnic ancestry don't stop at the end of a province. There's tons of intermarriage, tons mm -hmm. of intermixing. Again, Iran is a very diverse, rich Middle Eastern country. Uh, in terms of this social, cultural legacy. Uh, and Kurds have played a huge role in it in the past, and unfortunately in the mainstream history, it's not necessarily carried over. Uh, a lot of it had to do with you know state, state center and periphery relations that when you were in a modern nation building, state building project, uh, you know, Iran and Turkey also went through this uh, uh, relationship. Turkey actually in a much more kind of militarist worse way in the early 20s and 30s. Um, but ultimately, in, in the state-building enterprise, yes, there was one culture that was promoted. Um, when you look at, you know, the relationship of past Persian empires, you know, a couple thousand years ago, they were much more cognizant of this diverse legacy. But the modern nation-state always takes one culture and makes it the national culture. Um, but but I, I, I digress on that front, because what the regime has tried to do is say, well, she's Kurdish, there are major protests in Iranian Kurdistan, and there's three major city centers in Iranian Kurdistan. But um, there, so there's a lot of protests there, and they're shelling Iraqi Kurdistan, and they've thus far fired three wow. times now since the protests have began ballistic missiles into Iraqi Kurdistan, and actually wow. for the first time ever killed an American citizen uh, in Iraqi Kurdistan using ballistic missiles. Uh, you know, we've had a relatively muted response to it, unfortunately. I think that muted response. I haven't even yeah, heard of that. That's, yeah. People were, ended up, and they ended up saying that, you know, well, he's a dual national. I was like, well, you know, if an American dies, you don't want to blame his passport. That's, that's a really kind of, with respect, asinine yeah. thing to say. Um, so, right. you know, we, you don't want to gift the regime anything and you don't want to pull your punches when, you know, at a time when it's weak because the regime is acting out abroad like this because it's so weak and it's trying to pin it on one element of the population because Kurds, yeah. Turks, Persians, Afwazi, Baluch, Lors, Bakhtiaris, all the different ethno-sectarian groups inside of that country, they all saw what happened to Massa the same way. And that is, that is a qualitative shift in the competition between these groups before, because these are people who may not agree on a lot, but ultimately they've been under the boot of the Islamic Republic, and they understand that it's sink together or swim together. So while Iran is majority Shia, and in fact you could say that as the government has become more Islamist, the population has become more secular, in, par in, right. in provinces of Iran in the southeast, where there's a, you know, a Sunni uh, group, the, the Baluch are mostly Sunni, and in the west-northwest, where there's the Kurds, and they're mostly Sunni as well, but there are some Shia Kurds and other uh, different religious minorities there. In these two Sunni areas, um, you have had the population resist this label that the regime has tried to put on them as of them being separatist, because they're ethnically different mm -hmm. and, and sectarianly different, 
And the popular the government has tried to say, well, these are separatist protesters. And the most beautiful thing you've heard from them in Persian, which is not their main language, is protesters in both of these provinces cite the name of their city capital. And then so they would say for Kurdistan, they would say from Sanandaj to Tehran, my life only for Iran. Or in, in Baluchistan in the southeast, they would say from Zahedan to Tehran, my life only for Iran. So when the government is trying to present this fractious image, Absolutely. the minorities are presenting an image of national unity. And that really is beautiful. I Yeah, I think that's very important and beautiful. And I really appreciate you touching on that because, you know, the Iranian government tries so hard to pin people against each other to maintain control. And the fact that everyone has been rallying around this one woman who is Iranian Kurdish is something that's so beautiful. And I think it's giving such strength to the movement. For sure, um, for sure. So I think very, very cool. So obviously, Masa Amini, she was murdered. Um, she was beat for by the morality police for not wearing her hijab correctly. Although there are some reports that her pants were too yeah, tight. Yeah, either one is, like a, is, is insane, by the way. Policing the... Yeah. yeah. And just a disclaimer, which I think is really important. This isn't about wearing a hijab or not wearing a hijab. It's about the freedom to choose. It's, yeah, choice. You authoritarianism know? says there's only my way or the highway, whether that's hyper-secular exactly. or hyper-Islamist. And in this case, uh, you have, again, a, an Islamist government and a secular nationalist society. And, and that inherently already creates the predicate for instability. So when law and brute force comes in, you know it's going to be bad. Mm -hmm. um, speaking of brute force, let's talk about the Iranian government's response, which has been horrifying and brutal and disgusting. There's been lots of stories and people reporting that some like extremely violent crimes against women and girls, um, including rapes and just bodies disappearing from their families and whatnot. And I think it's really important that we've discuss that and also address the fact that women are leading the revolution, are leading this movement, cutting their hair, doing such drastic acts in a country where they're actively trying to be silenced. So I think it's important that we discuss the brutalities of the Iranian government. Yeah, let, let, let's at least give their names a voice. Let, let's at least begin with, um, you know, unfortunately, your viewers have to look at my image, but and I'm not trying to make light of this, and I and I, and I really do. Uh, no, yes, it, it's, totally. a, it's a you know very pleasant conversation. We're having a drink, but like we have the luxury of distance from this problem. You know, mm -hmm. we're both in the states right now. We have the luxury of significant distance from this problem. Uh, but the 83-ish million people who live there do not at all have the luxury of distance, um, and so they have seen quite close up on TV and and social media and elsewhere and, and the press um, the image of Masa's face on September 16th, 2022, the, the beaten, brutalized image with all the tubes and all the hospital stuff on her, um, that is the thing that it just it clicked in the mind of everyone, regardless of race, religion, geographic, demographic, class disposition, whatever have you, that said, no, like is, en enough is enough. So if we're going to begin with a story of the violence, the brute force, the nature of the crackdown, uh, which again is, um, is not an anomaly, uh, and these protests are not the first ones, uh, and there are tons and tons of these stories about, you know, uh, interrogations that involve torture, uh, you know, rape of uh, male and female prisoners, uh, forcing false confessions due to torture, disappearing kids from families, leaving bodies on the street permanently uh, in working class neighborhoods. Uh, oh, there, unfortunately, there, there is a litany of stuff that we could fill the rest of this podcast with uh, that would right. be just gruesome. 
And, Disgusting. Um, there is a line from, uh, you know, e- even now it would be somewhat inappropriate to, you know, mention an Ayatollah, but there was a guy who was supposed to succeed, uh, you know, the founding father, if you will, of the Islamic Revolution, right. Ayatollah Khomeini. And this guy's name was Ayatollah Montezeri, and he fell out of favor because he protested the mass executions of political prisoners in Iran in the late 1980s. And he also lent his, he was later under house arrest and some said he was defrocked and whatnot, but he died, you know, amid the green movement in 2009, 10, if I'm not mistaken. And there was a line he said about the nature of the regime uh, in Iran. And I'm going to politely pick on your language here. Um, Go for it. the, The line that he said was the Islamic Republic is neither Islamic nor Republic. So the nature of all that behavior the disappearing, the torture, the nail pulling, the electrocutions, the the rapes, the uh, the, the beatings, the the forced confessions, uh, you know, the, the the what we see on the street, the live ammunition uh, against the protesters, uh, the the nature of the state pushback is not consistent with any kind of Republican, like capital R, like behavior. Or smaller. I don't know which one. Capital. Whatever is the whatever is the nature of government. Um, yeah. Behavior. I think. Is it small R? Right. I think small, small R. R. The nature of small R yeah. behavior. And it's not a U.S. podcast. Or this is not. This is not a, this, we're not <laughs> trying to focus on the. We have enough problems in Iran, right? I mean, to, to, to pivot, pivot oh to Washington is you know we're going to have to move oh, to something stronger. We like have to be stronger yeah, than, than beer. <laughs> but um. IV drip. Yeah. Um, but so, yeah, it certainly is not in the nature of any kind of Republican representative government to do these kind of things. And it also isn't even in the nature of some of these things, these self-professed religious things of some of these guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so really, it is just an abhorrent. We should call this regime what it is, like a third world abhorrent dictatorship that uses all of these methods of violence and brute force we've seen uh, all around, you know, countries that do have authoritarian systems uh, by the state to repress the street yeah and um yeah i think i think i think that is why now pivoting to that like polite pick a part of your language iranian government and all this stuff you know you can use that language but there's one word i try so hard not to use and you know if there's a takeaway here is that the word iranian and regime so regime is that you know it's a pejorative Mm. word right and you know a lot of people use it as a shorthand like oh the iranian regime did this the iranian regime did that um there is nothing, and this, I know a lot of great activists have said this too, so I'm amplifying what they've said, but I wholeheartedly yeah, believe it as an Iranian-American. Uh, there is nothing Iranian about this regime. Uh, you know, Iranian yeah. is a good descriptor. It should be a descriptor of, you know, the things that that civilization has inherited and built and given to the world for millennia now. Um, <laughs> and regime is a pejorative descriptor. So when you graft a good thing onto a bad thing, you make that good thing sound bad. You know, Iranian government, Islamic Republic, Tehran, clerical regime, whatever language you want to use is great. But yeah, and because and, government is neutral, regime is pejorative. You know, I just think we always need to have that in mind that our problem, the American problem, the American issue with Iran is not one of Iranian power. It's how the Islamic Republic t- chooses to wield that power. It's what the Islamic Republic, what the government is doing at home and what the government is doing abroad. No one has any qualm with Iranian civilization. No one any, has any qualm with a strong Iran. What we have a qualm with is, is that behavior being welded in that way. Uh, and and, and right. I think this is an argument that as when the regime is in trouble, they try to graft the nationalism card. They try to play the rally around the flag. And, you know, hats off to the Iranian people. They don't buy it. 
and we shouldn't be aiding them no. in it. I think that, thank you for correcting me. No, no, you, you didn't use the word regime, important. you used the word government, but I, I wanted to use this, oh, I I okay. to use this no, opportunity no, no, to, to, to you know, add a footnote to that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think it's so important. And then just also for anyone who thinks that this is a display of Islam is severely yeah, that too. incorrect, um, which I think is super important. Oh. Islam is extremely beautiful and peaceful religion. And this is not any way tied to that religion. It is people using the religion as a guise for author for authoritarian power, which I also think is something really. And, and the funny thing is now with like faith, even like they've tried to make this a religious society. It's actually fundamentally one of the more like secular societies in the region. It's like it's just because when you force anyone into anything, they're going to double down against it. So you know, word to, word I mean, word to the like wise: no force. I mean, has no one read like a parenting book? I know with my mom, she knew not to like say something because I would immediately disagree. Yeah, this this you raises know? larger kind of questions. Like what kind of parents would be like if you push back? Like how do you take something away from someone or how do you how do you make someone, you know, listen in this way? I, I don't think the relationship right now, by the way, should be, you know, between state and society it should be one of a parent, but you raise a good question, like no. sociologically. Right. If you tell someone not to think of like a cheeseburger or of a zebra, I'm pretty sure the first they're gonna want to do yeah. it even more. Right. Come on, guys. Yeah. Silly, silly. So let's talk some numbers. So what are the estimates coming in at the people that have been killed or and arrested? Uh, so in terms of arrested, again, this is the ones that human rights organizations have been able to, to put out. And again, they're reported. And I'm sure that I use this word price floor versus price ceiling. I think these are price floors. Right. So they should be the baseline of our open source estimates to consider new information on top of that. And, you know, Right. You can barely ever trust the official stuff coming out of Iran, and the official stuff is probably half of the stuff in terms of quantity that is being reported and independently confirmed by some of these human rights organizations. But it's about fifteen to 17,000, uh, if I'm not mistaken as of now, fifteen to 17,000 arrested, I think about six on death row, uh, anywhere from 400 to 450 killed. And again, 31 provinces, over 140 to 145 different cities, towns, villages, and over up to 150 different educational institutions. And yeah. in the strike world, at least three or four different sectors have been participating in those strikes. The goal recently is to have nationwide strikes. Uh, you, know, you know, there was a, a goal mm. for 100 cities. I don't think we're at 100 cities. I think we're barely halfway there. Um, but the goal is to eventually have the strikes amplify the streets. Uh, and at least that, that is what you can see happening kind of in slow motion through the videos coming out on social media and the very public things, uh, not just any kind of coherent protest leader, but protesters, plain people uh, are saying about the direction of uh, their fight. Right. And so what would those strikes look like? What would they be abstaining they from? They would basically be designed to shutter the economy, either sector-wide, locally, or nationally, of the Islamic Republic. So the goal with, a, with any kind of strike, especially you know, for, this, for this inherent political purpose against this government, uh, is to deny the regime of revenues and to create basically more short-term chaos. And in the medium to long term, Time is always a weapon, as much as information is a weapon, uh, in these contests between the street and the state. And the regime is trying to run the clock on the time to tire out the protesters. Strikes, by virtue yes. of giving an economic boon to the people and an economic cut to the regime, is trying to take back time and put it on the side of the streets. That's why it really is kind of a marriage if you have street power and strike power. Uh, and unfortunately, the strikes that we've seen have not been sustained. 
But when you had the revolution and the street protests and the strikes in 78, 79, that led to the collapse of the U.S. allied Shah and then the Islamic Republic coming in, right. uh, you had significant and sustained strikes in the energy sector. And whether it was that regime or this regime, you know, it is still very heavily an oil-dependent economy. So what you should look for right. is, you know, not just the oil sector, the refining sector, shipping, insurance, and also the petrochemical sector, because that is really a way the regime is making a lot of money. And then if you amplify that with the service sector, laborers, and education sector, then you really have a recipe uh, to, again, weaponize time and money and put it on the side of the street and not the state. And so what are your opinions of international governments implementing sanctions as a way as, as, as a way of disciplining Iran in this moment? So I think a lot of this stuff, so you, you know, I'll be you know, very forward about this. Uh, it's been very good to see, you know, US, UK, Canada, EU, and some other jurisdictions uh, naming and shaming. And what they're doing a very good job of is not just kind of like blanketly, like closing their eyes and saying, you know, Iran bad or whatever. Um, they're actually able, because this stuff is public, it's open source, able to identify at the local and mid-level and provincial level commanders of Iran's security forces, political officials, judicial officials, security officials who are supportive uh, physically, materially, or politically of the crackdown. And that is good because, you know, while some have had questions as to, well, what could a Treasury Department designation really do against this security right. service when this guy doesn't travel there or he doesn't have a U.S. bank account or something like that? What could it really do? And what it really does is it puts wind beneath the wings of the Iranian protesters because just like all the Eastern and Central European dissidents said in the 70s and 80s, whenever you uh, stand with those who have been imprisoned and those who are protesting, and you name and shame and expose the people and literally the ranks, the names, the date of birth, all this kind of stuff, that it, again, has become publicly available, and, and kudos to many of these governments doing it, uh, of the security apparatus, you are putting a face to the apparatus of repression, and you're making it harder for that apparatus of repression to continue to do its job. Now, uh, there is a lot of space and room for improvement, for instance, because just like the strikes could cripple the oil sector and put time on the side of the protesters, there are legally and politically, at least here in the U.S., not in Europe really, but in the U.S., uh, remaining oil sanctions. And yes, it's a political issue between Biden and Trump and Obama and Bush, and you have had different periods of right. different under Republicans and Democrats, uh, peak oil sanctions and oil enforcement over time. But if that is a way the regime is getting revenue, and not just doing this kind of stuff that we see in Iran, but giving drones to Russia for Putin to use against uh, Ukrainian civilians and right. critical infrastructure like generators and, you know, anything else there. Like you want to be if the regime is intent on punching its own people with two hands and punching abroad with two hands. What some of these sanctions can do if vigorously enforced over time is to well, if the adversary is coming at you with two hands to at least force it to tie one hand behind its back. And as, as yeah. that happens over time, you have less of a budget and more potential for the security services and the political elite to make mistakes. And that is how you, again, can give an advantage or leverage to the street against the state. Because the regime does have all the guns. The regime does have all the money. And here are some non-military ways that you can lend some support. I know many have been critical uh, of the sanctions in the past, but I, I really think fundamentally that's based on a misunderstanding. And there was a taboo that was broken in earlier periods of protest, uh, particularly in 2018, uh, when there was really peak American pressure coming down, uh, particularly in the oil space. 
And there was one protest slogan. I'll say it in Persian first because a lot of the, the slogans they rhyme, um, and it's like either yeah. it was it's like a street kind of chorale <laughs> kind of thing. Um, yeah. But they would you know protesters would go uh, literally outside of government institutions, government buildings, whatever, and they would say "Doshmanama Haminja Sturuk Miyan Amrikast," which translates to "Our enemies here they lie when they say it's America." And that is unheard of in in a lot of these international relations cases that where if you're putting yeah. foreign pressure and there is already a domestic kind of social movement, usually the chances are that the foreign pressure may impede or hurt the social movement. Right. Or people used to use this phrase back in 2009. And I think even Obama, I don't want to use the word atone, but Obama just finally did a 180 on this because, you know, he was afraid to stand with the green movement in 2009. Um, right. You know, there was always the fear that this kind of pressure against the regime and support to the people would be some kind of kiss of death. And really we saw that, you know, that sacred cow slaughtered and, and nothing happened. And in fact, the people are able to distinguish between what you do to the state and what you do to the society. Yeah. With the 15,000-ish people that have been arrested, um, which could most likely is much more, um, 15,000 to 70,000. And there was recently it came out that the Iranian government voted to for the death penalty for all these protesters. Can you shed some insight on that? And what has and obviously the international response was what the fuck, what has been the resulting of that announcement? You know, for a regime that has no compunction using the, the, the violence of the brute force on the streets in the way they do, quite literally in some jurisdictions, uh, like in Kurdistan or Baluchistan, using weapons of war openly on their own population, uh, it's interesting to see how they've tried to play this political and legal game. You know, uh, they yeah. it's called the, whatever the judicial apparatus or the judicial system, but you know, we like to call it the injustice system of the Islamic Republic. It's doling out injustice. So he, here yeah. I think they got quite political. Um, in these different iterations of street protests, particularly the 2017 to present ones, which are totally all anti-regime, in 2019, in a matter of, you know, six to nine days, especially in the early period when there was a nationwide internet blackout, the regime killed 1,500 people. That's based on internal wow. sources alone that Reuters revealed in December 2019. Uh, so clearly they have yeah. no qualm with the killing. So I think what they're doing with this sentencing now is trying to deter protesters, just like with the recent yeah. bit of information that came out that ultimately was walked back and, ten and actually was mischaracterized in the Western media. It was that the, the morality police... Say what the, uh, yeah, will you say what that information sure. is? Sure. So it, it was in, initially there Specifics. was an attorney general and someone in the judicial apparatus you know, a mistranslation, a mischaracterization, a decontextualization of what that individual said uh, about the future of the force, of the future of this morality police, uh, and that, you know, it was going to be disbanded or is going to be is disbanded already, something to that effect. But this is incorrect. And even you had semi-official state media come out, you know, CNN has even come out and helped correct this as well. So it's not just me reading the Persian sources. This stuff has now okay. come out, CNBC, CNN, all these other outlets have kind of course corrected. Um, and I'm actually in the process of t talking to some reporters who are helping shed light on this and helping to get the Good. public to make sure that this information is course corrected, because I think this was a... That they realize that the morality police has not actually been yeah. disbanded and it is not factually correct when the media, the American media reported And that. And I think that was, you know, that was much less in the Iran, this, all due respect to reporters and whatever, but I think that was much less you know, Iran subject matter expertise and mishandling or whatever. And I think it was much more, you know, people, reporters, they see stuff that's newsworthy and they try to, you know, 
put what Jump is newsworthy in the in the headlines. And, and unfortunately, this kind of stuff can happen, but it should not be happening yeah. in this fight because information, just like time and just like money, is a weapon in this state versus society fight that we're seeing. And in this nationwide, you could basically call it a revolution uh, going on for you know two and a half-ish months now, almost three months now we're entering, um, we can't afford any self-inflicted wounds. Uh, so I think that's, that's why, you know, the truth will set you free, if you will. The clarity of this information kind of needs to be out there. And in this, in this yeah. sense, you know, there's a Persian saying, which is, uh, which is there's a bowl under the bowl. Uh, and that, that doesn't make any sense in English, but it means that, you know, things are not as they appear. or There's something more sinister at yeah. play. And I think in this instance, the, um, the kind of leaking of this kind of haphazard statement by this official may have been designed to erode protester resolve to say, oh, uh, you know, maybe there's a concession coming uh, and maybe this concession, quote unquote, could be used to prevent strikes. Maybe this concession could be used to dampen the will of protesters to keep turning out, uh, could be used as a weapon to thwart future protest movements. And this, plus the other allegation of the parliament uh, allegedly considering changing the hijab law, uh, which is almost as old as the Islamic Republic itself, these are pieces of information that I think the regime is trying to weaponize in their fight uh, against the street. That makes a lot of sense. It's very sneaky. I think it's, I think it's quite sneaky. And just like they're trying to use the selective death sentences to deter future right. people from coming on the street, this is all like a hybrid political fight. And again, information is being wielded by the state uh, against their own population. One of the things that I want to talk about is the initial, this is kind of going back Mm -hmm. a little bit, but when the protests first started, there was a, so many videos of women cutting their hair. Can you shed insight onto why that was the movement that women decided to choose and, and why that was done in order to show protest. And it was very powerful too, because, you know, traditionally it was taking off the hijab and then there was burning of the hijab, mm-hmm. you know, 2018 to present. Right. There's been different social movements, particularly again, 2018 is a, is a critical year when you look at the, the origins and the evolution of these anti-hijab movements, even though there have been anti-hijab movements almost as long as the, the regime has foisted this law onto the population back in, you know, the very early 1980s. So, uh, in, in this instance, it was taking the fight to the next level, that if you are going to force me, an Iranian woman, me speaking on behalf of Iranian, uh, yes. to you know, <laughs> have to cover my hair because this is some kind of sexualized thing, uh, they were literally coming out, not just sans hijab, but cutting hair in solidarity, that you can't own this either. Uh, and then you even saw some men shaving their head too, and some men uh, you know, helping uh, burn uh, the, the hijabs of their partners or spouses or whatever. Um, but I, and this was again, taking the, the fight over symbolism to the next level. And it was another fight about women's liberation. But again, I would, I would respectfully contextualize this fight that this is the most important vector because it's the youth, it's Gen Z and it's women leading this iteration of protests, but it makes sense together in the larger 2017 to present iterations of protests, because these are almost like a dynasty. One protest rises, another one falls, another one rises, another one falls. And there've been different triggers for these protests. And this one is the social one, the gender one. There've been economic ones, there's been food ones, there's been environmental ones. And it's not to deprivilege or deprioritize one plight over another plight. It actually shows you how linked these plights are and how dedicated the population is to using all and, and nationalizing 
the struggle on all of these areas, the environment, security, foreign policy, uh, economic policy, food security, uh, gender rights, gender equality, human rights in general, using all of them as any available vector to protest against this regime. And and we can't we can't afford to disconnect the dots on this one. And respectfully, my gripe with some of the Western media, and I'm glad beer the beer podcast is getting this right, um, <laughs> is that we have fallen, particularly in the early iterations of these protests, we've fallen for reading the trigger for the protest as to the sustainer of the protest. And so you did describe this as a revolution. What makes, where do you think this is going to go? And why are you using that word? So I would never put words in the mouths of the Iranian population, uh, but we should be listening to the words coming out of their mouths. And we should not be putting our words in their mouths. So if you look at the diverse array of slogans chanted uh, since December 2017 to present and since September 20, September 16, 2022 to present, these are not about seeking incremental changes uh, in the country. These are not about reconciling yourself to one faction or the other faction. These are not about settling for the least bad option. This is a wholesale movement trying to change the government in that country. And I don't know about you, and English is my first language, even though I, I, I am bilingual. Like that, is, that tends to be called a revolution. And when the state loses and the, the kind of governing elite loses their social base, because starting in 2017, the urban and rural poor, the, the second generation, the, even the religious families who are joining these protests, uh, the fact that it is so geographically widespread, it's not about North Tehran or the middle class. It, it would be a mistake to call it anything but. And I think it, it's, an, it's an analytical handicap yeah. that tells you more about the analyst, the outside observer, than what is going on on the ground inside the country that needs to be more properly analyzed. So I'm happy to debate anyone on, on this issue. Um, You're like, come at me. I dare hold, you. Hold, yeah. hold my beer. Oh, <laughs> You're the first guest I've had to ever do that, by the way. And I, it's a shame. Yeah. What, what a real shame. I guess kind of the real next big thing is, you know, the Iranian people have been going for two and a half months. There's been extensive killings. There have been extensive attacks. There's been extensive arrests. How do they continue? How can we support Iranian people in fighting for what their main slogan has been, which is woman life freedom? What do you there, think? There is so much we can do. Um, th- this could just be like a separate, like, you know, I don't want to rattle off the, the you know, a, a list of bullet points, but I, but I will give some. But me and a, a, me, me and a colleague, actually, um, and this colleague, he's like an economic whiz. He does econometrics. Um, his name is Saeed Qasemanijad. We had a, a report out or like a, you know, larger op-ed out in, in late September, early October of this year uh, with quite literally a 10-point plan. Um, of what the U.S. can do, the U.S. government can do. And then our office mm-hmm. updated that. We had a memo with many of the other experts and analysts as to uh, what can be done that is even broader than this 10-point plan. But you asked a critical point about the individual. I think anyone with social media can and should be amplifying or who is interested in these issues, of course. Nothing should be forced in life. And, you know, I don't want to be more Catholic than the Pope because I don't even have Twitter. So, like... Yeah. Here's the thing, though. I You may not have to say you should do whatever you want. In this one, I'll say you should all be supporting the Iranian well, I, mean, I, I would, I would yeah, I would, I would not force anybody, but yeah. yes, we, we, we all... I think we... Yeah. Um, you don't um, have to force. Oh, come on, strong. Emotionally and, and, like, intellectually, how could one not is what I'm saying. 
Right. Uh, well, so a lot of people are assholes, and I think you're. <laughs> <laughs> See, I live in my own bubble, even though I live in DC. So you know, who knows what right. I'm dealing with other than ass. <laughs> no offense, DC. Don't. Literally. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Don't yeah. fire him. Not yeah. you guys. Sorry. But no, it, it, in essence, there is a ton that we can do. You know, one is amplifying the plight uh, of the Iranian people, mm-hmm. even sharing with friends and family what has kind of become a de facto anthem, the song Baraye with the lyrics, which has kind of become like this anthem uh, of this movement. Um, you know, people, people sharing the names of deceased uh, protesters, people even writing their congressman or congresswoman or whatever about the miners killed, making sure that any legislature around the world uh, actually is using whatever kind of limited floor time possible uh, to amplify the plight of the Iranian people. Uh, I just, I had the good pleasure of being in Europe and, you know, having traveled a little bit and just looking at some of the stuff that's actually really inspiring coming out of the European Parliament right now from all the different countries, Sweden, Greece, you know, uh, the actual head of the European Parliament. These people are lending their platform uh, to amplifying the, 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 the plight of the Iranian people and calling upon local, national, international governments to do more. And so we need to think creatively about doing more. But step one is to get the message out and get the messages widespread out. Step two is to have a shared assessment of this issue. And this is where I'm about to respectfully get a little bit political. And I, and I apologize. All Please. of this sanction stuff, all this support stuff is great. But so long as at the heart of most Western policy towards Iran, this, and I'm probably going to lose some of your fans here, but so long as at the heart of the policy is a resurrection of the 2015 nuclear deal, and we can get into this if you want, but so long as that is the core of the Iran policy, despite you know people in the Biden administration saying, no, no, that's not our priority anymore. So long as that is the core, all the stuff that's happening is going to be peripheral to supporting the Iranian people. We need to put that stuff in the driver's seat and find a way to amplify and support and stand with these people. Because if we get this deal, if Khamenei ever does pick up the phone, the current Supreme Leader of Iran, 83, 84-year-old guy, if he does pick up the phone that Biden has been ringing, uh, saying, you know, what's up, bro, like for a, a year and a half, if he does pick it up genuinely and says, yeah, I'll take the cash bailout, we would be in the position of clipping the wings of the protesters, underwriting the engine of foreign aggression, which is the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, the people shooting missiles at Iraq, the people putting the squeeze on U.S. partners and allies in the Middle East, the people proliferating these drones to... To, to Putin, the people tightening the Islamic Republic and Russian Federation axis that exists right now, and the people doing the repression at home, the people who run these prisons, the people who do these interrogations. So there's, there, is, there is a ton there. Um, I think something very big and, and that, we, that we could do beyond closing the door on this fatally flawed deal uh, and telling our elected officials to do that uh, is to call for a strike fund. You know, this is something that the U.S. did and, and many labor unions had a lot of support to back in the, in the day uh, with Poland in, in the 1980s. We should be supporting Iranian labor strikers and, 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 and unionists and trade unionists of all forms. And this is an area where some of the labor unions have been lacking today. I, I don't know why. Um, and, and this may sound extra political, too. And I apologize in advance, but... No, I love it. In... You know, February 24, the the Russian invasion, uh, Putin's invasion of, of Ukraine um, changed everything. And, you know, I've been at this company following the Iran debacle, which in many ways has the sanctions issue at the forefront uh, for a decade now. And so me and a colleague, actually the same Iranian-American colleague, Saeed, 
we were like, okay, well, you know, we've seen the U.S. and the U.N. and the EU and whatever use these sanctions before, and we assume that they're going to be using them on Putin. So maybe we should write an article together about the lessons learned from the Iran sanctions fight towards a larger target like Putin towards Russia. But then by, and we published that in March when the invasion happened in April. But then by the time we got to April, May, June, the things that we saw coming out of Western policy, the far-reaching secondary sanctions, the effects, the energy pushes, uh, and the most importantly, the travel bans, asset forfeiture, asset seizures, literally the, the, the US and the UK and the EU were like taking yachts of these Russian oligarchs and apartments and bank accounts. And what we heard, me and my Iranian-American colleague heard from the Iranian diaspora and from the Iranian dissident community, which is, you guys have been in the sanctions business for so long, but this kind of regime, the, the children of regime officials with the blood money of their parents are like, they have like safe houses and party lifestyles in Europe and in Canada and in America, and even in like, you know, places closer to Iran, like Turkey. Uh, how come you guys went so far to, to punish the Russians? But she didn't do that for a smaller country that had a less of an ability to punch back like the Islamic Republic. Why is it that it's not okay for the Russians to own property and all this stuff, but you know, you're totally cool with the regime officials, the world's foremost state sponsor of terrorism, routinely chanting death to America, death to the UK, death to Israel, and then still sending its kids abroad to, to the West to study and to live? You know, I do not believe that the sins of the son necessarily are the sins of the father or vice versa, whatever the statement is. But we have to be cognizant that the material wealth that they bring is the wealth that was extracted and taken from the nation. And if it's oh, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. If this is an okay tool in the fight against Putin, why is it not an okay tool in the fight against Khamenei? Why is it not an okay tool in the fight against uh, the you know Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and the children of the elite? And you know, again, I don't have Twitter, but the most impactful, in my view, tweet the day. Massa was killed on the 16th, they should just pronounce dead on the 16th, um, was a tweet by a very famous Iranian soccer star, Ali Karimi, a former soccer star. Um, and he wrote in Persian, their children leave, our children die. And what one might think that this visa stuff is political, but no, look at, look at what he said, that how come children like Massa, a 22-year-old woman, has to be killed like that? and is subject to these laws. But your children, uh, and you are the ones making and enforcing these laws, get to go and live these like luxurious party lifestyles. That is simply not okay. What you said, I agree with, and I think it's extremely important, and also just speaks to a whole lot of prejudice and racism in American politics. And, and I do not want to you know, point a finger and say racism or whatever, but it is very unfortunate that that can be a conclusion one can draw. Uh, when how come we're going to do this on the Russia side where we're not going to do this on the Iran side. And the diaspora and the dissident community is just up in arms about this. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing. Of course. I appreciate it. Thank, Thank you, you for giving some insight into what's been going on and history. And I think it's so important. And you can't look at anything without looking at the historical context. Oh, sure. That's kind of my personal belief. Everyone continues to be inspired by what is going on in Iran right now. Uh, we can't take our eye off the off the ball. We can't take our eye off the prize. But we should all be taking our cues from what's going on. No one is asking anyone to get out in front of this. But we should be inspired and in taking our cues from the facts on the ground and the people on the streets. Uh, and so one can only continue to wish them well and find any creative way uh, to make sure our governments are supporting them wholeheartedly. And step number one, first, do no harm.
Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I'm your host, Evelyn Gross, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Bureaucracy.